You are on Max's Island, a podcast by Meet Max Power. On Max's Island podcast, you'll hear the lived experiences of people who choose to live life a little differently. It might be a story of when they took time out and dared to do something crazy. Perhaps they made a decision to leave it all behind and follow their dreams. Or maybe they just stopped listening to what other people thought and did what was right for them. This experience becomes a story that is part of them and one that you need to hear. So, now that you're on Max's Island, listen to the wisdom in these stories and you too will be inspired to do what you have always wanted to do. Welcome back to the island and another episode in the summer series of Max's Island podcast. Summer on Max's Island is a time for us to review stories from the past year, especially those that have really captured our interest. During the year, we were introduced to two people who have experienced massive career changes, changes that have been inspired by emotional challenges, strong values and the ability to cope with having to make difficult decisions. The first guest today is Paul Price. Paul has been inspired by a saying that goes something like this. Don't ask what the world needs. Ask what lights you up. Because what the world needs is a whole bunch of people that are lit up. It's fascinating to realise this comes from a man who was ranked fourth best in the world in squash. Won Commonwealth Games medals. Performed consistently on the world sporting stage. Coached Australian teams and has been creatively driven to internationally release three albums as a talented musician. He has certainly been lit up many times in his life, and it's happening again. In his own words, I went back to trusting my instincts, and with the influence of key people within the Flow Research Collective, he is now passionately driven by the positive impact of Flow, and what it means to people, organisations, and the world. As a flow coach, Paul now brings his world-class high-performance experience together with his passion for the science of flow state to partner with others to chase and attain what truly makes them come alive. Yeah, I've gone through a couple of different transitions in my life, but the, the one that I'll, I'll choose to share today is, is more about the transition I've, I've come across in the last sort of 24 months, really but more importantly, the last year. I was the Australian national squash coach uh, working for Squash Australia uh, up until about August last year and been really passionate about that role and found myself in some challenging situations with the with the organisation and just found myself sort of heading down a, a sort of darker path of, of not being um, fulfilled and you know, really challenged and not not feeling that spark anymore. And so I, I, I recognized for a while there that, you know, if I kept going down this road and 
in this environment, I was going to be no good to anybody. And, and, and what I was, what I really realized was that there was no one at that point getting the best of me. And, and most importantly, my family were not getting the best of me. I wasn't getting the best of myself and the players that I was passionate about working with weren't getting the best of me either. So I, I made a decision to remove myself from, from that environment, um, kind of called Turkey without a, a direction to head to. And kind of my philosophy on that was I'd rather the stress of not knowing what's next as opposed to the stress of what I was being exposed to in a workplace. So I finished up in August last year on the back end of the World Junior Championships. We took the Australian junior team to Kuala Lumpur for the, uh, for the World Juniors and, and, the, and the, we, the girls team there finished with a, with a great result. So it was a nice way to sort of cap off my, uh, my national coaching role. So, Paul, for you, that is a bit of an end to a significant part of your life because you had been in the squash world as a professional for a long time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, squash had been pretty much a big part of my, or the biggest part of my life, I would say, for since I was the age of 13. So almost uh, you know, a good 30 years right there of immersing myself in an environment that gave me so much uh, joy and, and I was extremely passionate about it. And, and I love the sport. The sport's phenomenal, and uh, it's I'm, I'm I'm extremely grateful for the life it's given me. So it was it was a big thing, but it was probably something that had been coming for quite a long time. Um, when it, on reflection of that, not really knowing it during the the, the span of it, but um, so yeah. So once I, I sort of stepped away from it, it was then time. The biggest I think the biggest challenge was in front of me and trying to figure out kind of who I was from that moment forward. And we hear about this at times with athletes that they get their identity wrapped up in the sport and they become their, their results. They become their rankings. They become their, their positions and and, and not just athletes, but you know, generally a lot of high performers um, attach their identity to, to what they do. Um, and, And you can't get lost in who you are in a lot of that mess. And that's what I realized the place I was in. I, I, I actually, came out of that not knowing really who I was or what I was passionate about anymore. And that was a really um, foreign place for me to be because um, I've kind of chased passion around all my life. Like I, I, I fell in love with squash. So I chased a career in squash and became, you know, one of the best players in the world through, through following that passion. And then um, on that journey to, to tail end of that journey, I, I was passionate about music, playing guitar, writing and singing songs. So I, I became a musician and I recorded albums and, and did that, part as well and then the back end of that I got more passionate about coaching athletes uh, which is which led me to uh, the national coaching role eventually and and then yeah so stepping away so that was all you know such a massive part of my life there was a lot to to let go of I stumbled across a quote by a guy named uh, Howard Thurman and I won't, I won't be able to nail this quote exactly, but it was along the lines of don't ask what the world needs, ask what lights you up because what the world needs is a whole bunch of people that are lit up. And when I read that quote, Tony, it just, it just hit me like a ton of bricks. Like, and I get goosebumps thinking about it now. There was this thing inside me that led me to chase those things in my life that I loved. And I always explained it as I just have to do the thing I wake up thinking most about that was that was i was focused on 
getting back to myself first and foremost. Like that was the thing I thought. And a couple of players asked if I'd work with them on the court and things like that. But I, I said, look, I, I can't go back on the squash court right now. I just, I'm not interested in that. And I got an email one day from a, from a young player who said, a squash player who, who asked me if I could um, share my, my knowledge on visualization with him. And visualization was a huge part of my training as an athlete. Um, and it always has been, even still to today, I visualize a lot of stuff. So I said, sure, man, like, let's, I'd love to talk about that. And um, I said, why don't we, you know, come meet me, we'll have a coffee and we'll sit down and chat. And uh, he goes, oh, that'd be awesome. So I met up with this young guy and uh, we chatted for like two and a half hours. And the two and a half hours flew by, like it was in a blink of an eye. And I was, and I came out of the, and at the end of that conversation, I said, look, I said, it's really hard to like grasp. I said, look, what if we did some, you know, next three months we'll do some work together you know i've got an interest in mental skills and coaching in that area so maybe we'll just do some work together and see what happens he goes yeah i'd love that i walked away from that conversation with that feeling that feeling that was like i was lit up like sharing that knowledge sharing that thing and the helping someone else with that those sort of little aha moments or it really just you know it was inside my soul and uh i walked away from that going I thought about this life coaching thing about five, six years ago, but the squash coaching element was an easy path, an easy pathway for me. So I didn't follow up on that. I didn't pursue that part. It seemed a little bit more difficult at the time than the squash coaching. So I started looking back into that again and uh, doing some research on courses and things like that. And, uh, and as I did that, I, I signed up for, I went to some seminars and some events and online stuff and I sort of I started working with a couple other squash players as well on the same lines of as what I was working with this young player and I just I just freaking loved it like it was just it was so cool and I was and I was able to help them you know it was the knowledge I had it surprised me how well I could I could translate it into contextual value for them and they kept coming back as well so I thought okay well I must be doing something right So I, I took a course um, in life coaching in Sydney uh, in March and learned some really great and valuable information and learned a lot about uh, the ego and the shadow, my shadow self and things and unpacked a lot of stuff. And, and that was, that was mind blowing the, the stuff I learned there and, and the impact that it's had on myself and the clients that I work with now and what it leads to and the, and the transition of that ego, you know, we, the, the saying, you know, the, the ego is the enemy. You know, I, I, I think the ego is the enemy only if you don't befriend it and, and, and learn how to work with it. Because I honestly believe that that middle ground right there is, is a superpower. And if you can harness that superpower, you're going to find, you're going to unlock some significant uh, uh, power in your life that's going to add a lot of value and, and, and bring you lots of things that, you are, that you're looking for. But around about the same time, I discovered a guy named Stephen Kotler the information he shared blew my mind because it basically explained my entire life. I think the moment that I heard the information and the science behind it, I connected the dots very quickly around how I could use my experience of what I've, the way I've led my life to help other people find that 
thing inside them that lights them up by helping them understand what underpins the the experience and how you kind of need to optimize yourself for that to show up because flow state is an elusive experience for most people it's a very fleeting and very random thing that you know 20 years ago we didn't really know how to get it it was just sort of this thing that we would hope would show up especially as an athlete or a musician you um so in in business my first question was like can we can you teach everyday people in any field or any industry to tap into this experience and then as i as i learned through my study and my learning yeah you can at at this point in time like what is there to lose really i mean if there's ever ever been a, a better time to pivot and change your behavior your values and and or actually start living what's written on the wall in your organization or in your team locker room. And there's never been a better time to start actually doing that stuff than now. I don't know what, what is like, you know, people are hurting people are really needing genuine deep connections. So like step into that courage, step into that vulnerability. You don't need to know the answers. You just need to, to go fuck. Let, let's do this together, you know, um, and, and let's have a crack. But there's ever a time to change and, and lean a different way to see what will happen. It probably is. This is, this is the time here and now. And, and there's no, I, I don't see a, any way you could lose in this situation. Our second guest is Lisa Dobrin. Lisa was faced with a situation where she thought, this is not the life I was meant to live. Lisa is an authentic, empathic, and values-based leader. Her executive leadership spans 20-plus years across commercial, not-for-profit, and local government community services. She is a strong believer in equity, diversity, and working selflessly with others for the greater good. Lisa is currently the CEO of the WA AIDS Council and sets her daily goals to make a real difference. But the journey to this position came after a tough time for her. Being out of work before taking this role, she was financially, emotionally and professionally challenged. However, Lisa was able to take meaning, inspiration and spiritual awareness from the experience to become the inspired leader she is today. She has words of wisdom for everyone who at some stage is challenged in their life. where there's been some adversity or there's been some challenge and there's been pivotal moments, turning points where uh, the trajectory I was on or the pathway I was on was different to where I felt I was going or where I thought I was going or where indeed I felt I wanted to go. And one of those was most recently, which was probably the time and the journey that preceded my employment at, um, at WAC. And it involved a time where I was out of work for nine months and the experience can be summed up by saying I went from feeling like an imposter for many years to finally realising my true worth and finding out that I'm enough with all, without the things that I f- felt made me enough. See, that's really interesting because I know you've had a very successful career and that a period of time out of work would make you reflect and realise that. Yeah, absolutely. It's a it was a fascinating journey, um, one that a, a good friend and mentor of mine describes as the time when 
she witnessed me being very much in an oasis. And that oasis lasted for a, a bit over a year, probably about a year and a half, but it, it included a period of unemployment for nine months. And as someone who has had a very strong work ethic, has always prided themselves on how, how hard I work and being su very successful in all the things that I did from a work perspective, I fa suddenly found myself without that identity and without attachment to the things that I felt made me important, the things that, that made me of value, the things that made me of worth, or more importantly, or more accurately I should say, the things that I projected that the rest of the world felt made me have worth and value. And what were those things? The, the attachment to a very high paying job, the attachment to a brand new car every 40,000 Ks or every one to two years, the corporate clothes, the heels, the title, the, the attachment to telling people that I work in an industry where we do good, the attachment to the fact that I contribute and that I'm a somebody because I get up in the morning and I go to a certain place and I give to people and people want to talk about that giving and then I go home and I get to distract during that work day and I think less about what's really important and more about what I think you think is important. You know, I realised that in this period of time that I, I wasn't working and it's really important to qualify that by saying that I made forced choices around that. So I went through a period of time where I could have got a job and I knew I was very employable and that there were people who would have loved me to be in their, in their workplaces. But I had come to a point in my career and I suppose in my life where I realised that I no longer worked, wanted to work for people or with people that I no longer believed in. That I wanted to work for people where their talk absolutely matched their walk, where there was congruence and there was alignment and there was consistency and that the things that people were saying and the actions that they were taking complemented. And a mate of mine says, it's about closing the say-do gap. And in that period of time, I realised that the say-do gap in terms of some of the places that I had worked in my past and for some of the leaders that I had worked with, albeit that I had learned an extraordinary amount from all of them in one way, shape or form or another, I realised that I only wanted to work in organisations or with people or in cultures that absolutely aligned with my values and with my principles and, and in a way that I saw that people were absolutely living those values and living those principles and that say-do gap was not that wide. And this speaks to this, this, this um, awakening for me about what being enough really was and what being enough really is and the worth that, that I, I realised in that time with letting go of all of the attachments to the material and external things that I felt would fill the big hole in the soul that I have internally. And so I always had this, this belief that if I just got a tertiary qualification, even though I've got lots of letters after my name, that I would suddenly become enough. And I have to tell you that when I got the letter that said I actually got into the MBA, which I actually first got into in 2008, I actually realised that that just made me feel enough right there because someone saw that I had the worth of getting into uh, to something as prestigious as a master's without an undergraduate. And when I, when I finally 
started my master's, so I, I defer from that, and then, then I actually started my master's in 2016. That year was one of the hardest years I've had in, in probably a couple of decades. I had some, some significant health things that happened whilst working full-time, whilst being on um, boards, uh, whilst uh, trying to incorporate my own charity uh, in a very high-pressured day-to-day job, as well as relationship breakups and new relationships and all, all kinds of things going on in my personal and professional life. And I start this MBA, which I'm self-funding, and, and it was very different to what I thought it was going to be. But what became more apparent was the juggling of all of those priorities, the, the, the blood, sweat and tears of writing assignments, the being up till midnight or two in the morning to get an assignment done to the quality and level that I thought it deserved, the determination and the grit that I didn't realise I was going to need in order to balance all of those priorities at the same time. That was the stuff that started to develop my sense of worth and my sense of value and my sense of what's important as opposed to what grades I got for each unit. So when you got the letters MBA after your name, did it change anything? Great question. There's six letters all my life I thought if I got would make me finally enough that I could finally stand shoulder to shoulder, maybe not because I'm a bit shorter than most people on the planet, but shoulder to shoulder with most people and feel worthy and feel like I've earned my place in society, right? And that I've, that I've, I've made up for the failings of, and defects of my past and that I've finally become enough. Those three, well, those six words, those six letters, I should say, are two blocks of three. One was MBA and one was CEO. And I'm one of those privileged, blessed individuals, for whatever reason, who has been graced with, with the uh, competency, the capacity, the drive, the skills, the strategic thinking, whatever it is, all of those things, to be able to attain those six letters. But the irony is, it was the nine months between getting MBA and getting CEO that actually filled the hole in the soul and gave me, finally, the moment of clarity of what was important, what was enough, and what, me, what made me finally accept that those things aren't actually important. And what is important was how I got there and the journey to getting there, not the actual letters once I got them. The lowlights were many. And it wasn't just the nine months of actually being unemployed. It was the time that preceded that, which I'm not gonna go into, but there were some extraordinary challenges that I had never experienced in my life and I never anticipated experience in my life. And I hope I never experience again. So I'd come on the back of, of some really, really, really challenging stuff that, that absolutely pushed me to the edge on some days and made me question everything that I thought I knew about my working world and I thought I knew about how things really worked and what I thought about what people were capable of doing and what was fair and what was just. And I'm really okay with advocating for that, for all of the individuals and communities that blessed to support in my career currently and past and hopefully in the, in the future. But I never, I never expected to experience that again in my life as a professional and in a context where uh, I just didn't see it coming. 
So, so I'd come through this period and then I decided I'd take a bit of time off. But I never thought it would last for nine months. So I was living on savings. Now with someone who has MBA after their name, has earned you know, really, really, really high income in the past, has had, had the car and had the clothes and all of that, to suddenly wake up one morning and realise that I don't have to go to work or in fact I don't have a job to go to, at first was, was kind of exciting and was kind of freeing and liberating. And I had the money behind me, I'd saved hard, etc. But then that went on for a month and then that went on for two months and then that went on for three months and that ended up being nine months. And the low lights within that were, there was, I can tell you, there was many, many, many days that led to weeks if you accumulated the days where I laid, I'm happy to tell you this, because I, I do believe Brene Brown's vulnerability is our greatest strength, where I laid on my floor fetal in tears, wondering what the hell had happened, how I got here, how in the blink of an eye and a flick of a switch and the flip of a coin, life can change. Like, I mean radically change. And suddenly it was quiet and it was still and there was no one there because everyone else was going to work and at first people were supportive of me and people were always supportive of me by the you know to be fair but reality is it's like anything you're experiencing a grief and a loss and at first people rally around you and they want to make you dinner and they want to take you out and they want to look after you but life then goes on right and so it just becomes the new norm like COVID has I experienced my own COVID my own social isolation my own loss of income my own loss of identity I experienced my COVID before COVID. The difference was, and I'm not trying to compare because I don't think that's helpful, but the difference was I was the only one going through it. And I remember walking through Yanship National Park on my own and this was one of the biggest low light and the points where I didn't know what was going to happen next was I was walking through and I was on the ghost trail and everyone has done that. It's about a 13K trail and I was going through and I just felt so detached and dissociated from, from life and I just felt really lost and I just, I didn't, I didn't know what to do. And I'm in the middle of this, on my own, in the middle of this pathway, right in the middle. And I just, I kneeled down on the floor and I, and, I, and I cried. And I just had that moment of, this was not the life I thought I was here to live. And I don't know how I got to this point again. And I've been through points like that. And I was on the floor and I was genuinely on the floor on the gravel crying. And I didn't know if I could go on. I literally didn't know if I could go on. I just was like, I don't know what to do. Like a, a wise friend of mine tells me, and one of my, my mentors says, you know, there's three things you've got to do on any given day, Lisa. That is, you breathe in and out, you put one foot in front of the other and you put your bins out on bin night. And those three things felt too hard in that moment, right? And all of a sudden, I just kind of had that moment of surrender again. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, and I mean out of nowhere, a kangaroo that only could be described as humongous <laughs> appeared in front of me. And this male kangaroo just looked at me and I looked at this kangaroo and I didn't know what to do and I'm crying, like crying, crying, crying. And this kangaroo, I promise you, appeared out of nowhere and it just walked towards me and it continued to walk towards me and it stopped within, I don't know, five metres from me. And it just looked at me and I looked at it and we just had this moment where I just believed that something out there told me it was going to be okay. But I just believed that I was given the sign that I needed at that point to say, everything you are doing right now is leading to you where I next need you to be. And 
I have to tell you that that so, so the gap between the you know the MBA and the CEO was not easy. And I had this moment when I was offered the job at WAC, where I realised that the nine months in the desert, where I didn't know I was going to get out, and I say the desert because when I was in the middle of Yanchep and it was a hot day and it was gravel, you know, I was right in the midst of it. I felt like I was literally in the desert. And it was that moment in that which felt like a literal desert in Yanshep National Park where that kangaroo represented like the oasis that was coming. So Lisa, you worked your way out of those nine months. Was the highlight getting the job or was the highlight looking back and going, I've got the job? Look, they're both, they're both significant highlights. For the record, I have my dream career job. You know, as a kid, I was part of the Live Aid era. I was born and raised and grew up in London. Elton John, Freddie Mercury, Terence Higgins, you know, HIV was a, was a huge thing in the UK. And the roots of HIV and AIDS uh, were significant. And, and I was pretty young. I think I was uh, in my first 10 years of my life we also saw, you know, the images of, of, of um, you know, young, young African babies dying of HIV. Princess Diana, you know, Lady, Lady Spencer, her contribution, other very iconic people, Elizabeth Taylor, other people rallying around, hugging people with HIV who were covered in, you know, in sores and lesions. It was, it was a really, it had a really big impact. In fact, it was the first biggest, I suppose, global crisis that I remember in my lifetime. So I have a strong, you know, strong memories and strong affiliation with with HIV and, and AIDS and and the um, and, and the impact that had on me as a child. And I always wanted to change the world, right? And I, I always wanted to change the world. And when I heard Oprah say these words many years ago, and I don't mean to be arrogant, but I identify with this because I knew from my first memories that I I never wanted, you know, I never I never saw myself um, getting married and having kids and living a traditional life. I, I I wanted to save African babies from dying. Like I'm talking about when I was a tiny child. You know, you ask my family, and they'll tell you all I wanted to do was save people and save the world. And I don't know where that came from. It was, it was innate. It was it was um, it was kind of quintessentially who I was. It was from my first memories. So all I wanted to do was help people in need and I wanted to do that in a way that changed the world and made the world a better place. And I have the opportunity to do that in a different way than I maybe anticipated, but I feel like I've come full circle from my first memories as a child in in that I wanted to, to give back and contribute. And so I absolutely have my dream job. And what happened before I even got the job was I'd resigned myself to I'm enough without a job. I'm enough without investment properties. I'm enough without the corporate clothes and the heels. I'm enough without the fancy car. I'm enough without the paycheck. I'm enough without the letters after my name. Because what the people who loved and care about me tell me is when I walk into a room, they say it lights up. And when I walk down the street and smile at someone, it makes a difference. And when I ask someone in a random store how they are, it changes their day. And I realise that that, Tony, is what makes me enough. Thanks for joining us in this summer series of Max's Island podcast. I look forward to bringing you a new visitor to the island for 2021 in our next episode.
spoke on the bus on the way home from work he was lost in the details of life each day was a blur oh work and no play and how how it had turned out this way he told me his plan a short-term escape five weeks on the bibbling track sense was engaged his mind was as clear as the sky completely alone no emails or phone and nothing 